attempts to make things legible top-down typically fail. At the same time, I think making things legible is not negative per se. It's about how you use that legibility to help individuals be more empowered. So when you talk about a network state and sort of a, a more connected society, how can we use that knowledge and that interconnectedness not only to live a better life for ourselves, but also to have a very strong physical impact on our communities as citizens of both worlds, of both the virtual world and sort of the physical world. We will for sure always be rooted to the physical, unless we learn how to emulate the physical in a virtual world, upload our brains somewhere in a remote server, and then think that we have a connection to the physical, despite not having it. everybody. Welcome to the Boundaryless Conversations podcast, where we meet with pioneers, thinkers, doers, and entrepreneurs to talk about the future of business models, organizations, markets, and society in the rapidly changing world we live in. I'm Stina Heikele. I'm co-host of the Boundaryless Conversations podcast alongside Simone Cicero. Ciao, Simone. Hello, hello. Today, we're also joined by Joni Babocci. Joni Babocci is an architect, urban planner, and generally describes himself as a knowledge seeker and all around urban enthusiast. He's currently working on getting the web platform getlayer.xyz off the ground, whose mission is to democratize access to spatial intelligence. Joni has previously been the general director for planning and urban development for the city of Tirana in Albania. And his previous experiences also include leading groundbreaking planning and architecture startup for the Albanian government, nicknamed Atelier Albania. Joni has also worked with the private sector and multilateral organizations like the World Bank and so on. And Joni is basically developing a lot of ideas that very much intersect with the work that we do at Boundaryless and our explorations in this podcast. And he's using cities and urban planning as a special window to look at the world. So welcome to the show, Joni. It's great to have you here. Hi, Stina and Simone. Great to be here. The first question that we want to explore with you and as an introduction is this idea that if we look at organizing uh, very much at the intersection you know, between physical geography and tools that we have at our disposal, we have this idea that if we try to organize and plan uh, cities, neighborhoods, whatever, on geographical multiscalar way, this will help us to better align a sort of system view on how we organize our cities and our, and our space uh, in general. You have developed some of these ideas in some of your writings and so on. So it would be great if you can share this idea of why uh, should we think about a sort of multi-layer way of organizing our cities and why can it be helpful to look at decentralization and distributed organizing as a way to help us move towards the goals we set? Uh, yes, Tina, I think that it's such an interesting topic, right? I think that uh, the world has really changed in the past 50 years or so. Uh, we moved from a, a very sort of modernist kind of... Uh, a different kind of world, both in architecture and planning, but I think basically in every other profession. Uh, this idea of being able to deconstruct everything to its individual parts and then the ability of a single human to understand each singular part and then put it back together that can be a body or a city or a mind. And I think that we have, the last 50 years have helped us become much more humble. So I think we have been able to understand that the world is not as simple as we thought 50 or 100 years ago. So this Modernist paradigm, I think, is shifting uh, very, very fast in all fields of life, which are a bit complex. 
people are becoming more understanding of uh, how difficult it is to actually plan things, especially important to city planning, for example, which is uh, one of my passions and what I have dedicated most of my career to. When you think about a city and you think about planning, you typically think of, you know, where do we put the roads and uh, what should be the height of buildings? So a very sort of static way of thinking. And I think that uh, that is changing very, very fast. Uh, it's becoming much more organic. It's becoming much more bottom-up. One of the major works we did at uh, Atelier Albania almost a decade ago was how could we think of the territory as a set of flows? So our, our main product was a, was a book, which I can share with you, called The Metabolism of Albania. And the idea behind it was how could we look at the whole country as a series of flows. So how does agriculture flow? How does uh, water flow? How does electricity flow? And then try to identify in this system, what are the key sort of lever points where you have some synergy or you have some conflict between these different sort of needs? Uh, and therefore, that's not planning in the sort of original sense, right? It's more like, how can we think differently about how this system is working? And then what kind of influence we can have of something that is pretty much beyond our control. And I think that's, a, that's the main aspect of the mind shift that we're going through, not just in planning, but again, in, in, in the major, I think, complex sciences of both organization, which I know Boundaryless uh, is very interested in, in societal organization, political organization, in media and social media. So I think there's a, there's a big shift in, uh, in being more humble, in understanding the world as a, as a very complex interplay of uh, trillions of variables and, you know, our humble role in it uh, and the, the, the sometimes big, sometimes small impact that individuals can have in such large systems. Looking at the complexity and going away from the modernist idea that we can actually plan and execute and, it, and it's all very uh, sort of linear. In the essay, The Deeper Order of Cities, you also outline some of the ideas on how does this play out then when you try to think about a city that is bo both partly self-organizing itself, but you also might have some patterns or some structure to help articulate how that actually plays out in this century. I think that uh, in that essay, I speak quite a bit about this fairly interesting architect slash planner called Christopher Alexander, who worked for most of the past century. In the 60s and 70s, he actually wrote this book called A Pattern Language, which uh, was an inspiration to object-oriented programming, uh, which is a paradigm in, in computer programming. Uh, and I, it's interesting how this, this sort of very modern, very popular paradigm today uh, stemmed from a book about architecture and planning. And in this book, A Pattern Language, Alexander, in a fairly qualitative way, thinks of city-making, of planning, of architecture as a, basically a, a Lego construction of different patterns and different elements, which every individual has to put together by himself or by herself. And I think that the book was very ahead of its time. Uh, a lot of the, the, the very interesting thinkers of uh, 50 and 60 years ago, when you think about Jane Jacobs, for example, uh, often you think about, you know, eyes on the street and this idea of the fabric of urbanism, you know, the, the, the human aspect of it. And so you often think of it as a qualitative aspect, you know, as an anecdotal aspect. But in her books, Jacobs talks about organized complexity. She deals with it in a fairly scientific way in terms of understanding that some things are too interrelated and too complex to be actually understood as simple as we try to. 
So I think that the difference between that time, where the ideas were there, they were super interesting, but I think the paradigm was very, very different. It was a paradigm that gave us uh, Corbusier and Chandigarh and all of these sort of top-down, super-planned entities, both in architecture and planning. I think the difference today is that technology has been progressing to a point where some of these super interesting ideas about interconnectedness and sort of the role of uh, individual decisions in a larger system are now sort of more uh, more possible to actually happen in reality. So it's not just an idea you talk about. Now you can actually, uh, you have quite a bit of tools uh, that you can use to, to develop and to build these more difficult ideas of multi-scalar, multi-actor organization. And when we talk about cities, for example, I think uh, an interesting or a set of interesting concepts in a pattern language are the patterns that talk about the organization of communities and then from communities to subcultures, from subcultures to cities, from cities to regions, and then from regions to a world federation, as, uh, as uh, Alexander calls it. And all of this is driven by that community. He, he, he talks about a community between five and 10,000 people as sort of a, a good uh, size to, to self-organize and to have quite a bit of control over local taxes uh, and sort of um, make sure that you have skin in the game, you sort of, you, you, you build value within that community. And then from that sort of small element, you start building out uh, a mosaic of, uh, of more and more elements, all based on this bottom-up process of planning and thinking about communities. Now, I think that, again, in the past, not even 100, but even more than 100 years, this idea of centralizing from the top has been the driving uh, force to development, centralizing in terms of efficiency in in factories, uh, centralizing in terms of politics in statecraft uh, and the political organization of of countries. And I think that we are at at an inflection point where there are alternatives to that drive. So I think both through technology, both through knowledge, through AI for sure, through blockchain, through all of these interesting things that have been popping up in the last 10 years, I think there's quite a bit of tools now where individuals can actually think about organizing their individual universe differently than before and actually be able to survive or to to actually thrive in the current world in that different uh, way of organization. And again, these are super interesting ideas and the big challenge is how do you make this practical and how do you move to actually starting to build the long process of making some of these ideas possible in, in reality. The story of the organization, the industrial organization, has been defining for cities and, and also for citizens, citizens, I would say, more than citizenship. We have been connecting the idea of, of the industrial organization to the, the birth of modern cities and uh, the fact that people had to work uh, co-located in one place, uh, first in factories, then in the office, I'd say. And now it seems that um, due uh, mainly to, for example, the impacts of uh, technology and the acceleration that we have seen with the pandemic, it seems sometimes that uh, both uh, the city and the citizen have uh, somehow lost their meaning, right? Because, uh, for example, I was reading a few weeks ago an essay by Dror Poleg uh, called uh, Remote Bureaucracy, where he essentially is uh, arguing that uh, 
it's not that uh, uh, you know the office is dissolving. It's also that the corporation in itself is somehow going into a process of uh, uh, being unbundled into small pieces, and 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 therefore I, I think that this is extremely challenging for the idea of the city as a, as a consequence. In in the same time, we are also in uh, unequivocally going through this multi-meta crisis uh, that uh, is pushing everybody into somehow. Uh, paradox of uh, having to recast their priorities and, and their, you know, the meaning, the, the, and do sense-making on a daily basis. Is the city the place where, having lost uh, its role, its uh, traditional role from, from the last century, is it the city going to be the place where we prototype these new institutional agreements that are needed uh, for a kind of new development model? And, and, and you say, you know, we have to make it practical. And I think sometimes I feel there is nothing more practical than having to reinvent our livelihoods somehow, right? I totally agree, Simone. You started by discussing cities as sort of the place where the Industrial Revolution was concentrated. There's a fantastic planner uh, who wrote this book recently called Order Without Design, How Markets Shape Cities. His name is Alain Bertot. And among other things, he speaks of cities as labor markets. So the reason why cities exist and why you have innovation happening and you have sort of scale happening in cities is because they allow a labor market to, to function properly or to be more efficient. They aggregate different expertises in the same place, and therefore they allow for more and more complex things to be born out of it. It's very similar, in a way, to the idea that uh, Ricardo Hausmann at the Center for International Development, when he talks about national economies, we worked with him quite a bit a while ago here in Albania. When he talks about national economies, he talks about the atlas of economic complexity. He looks at the inputs and outputs of certain countries, and then he tries to figure out, these are the set of letters we have in our economy, and we can build this number of words. So if you want to build more complex word and larger words, we need to add some specific letters and make the whole system a bit more complex. I'm sure these are this will be part of the breadcrumbs, because uh, I think there are interesting ideas explored in, in different fashions. But going back to the idea of labor markets, uh, again, cities as labor markets has been sort of the driving force for sure behind cities for, for a long while. At the same time, I think that while that has been happening, cities have also developed a, a life of their own. I think that larger cities provide big diversity of options, optionality in terms of culture, in terms of um, entertainment, in terms of access to different foods and to different experiences, which are not, they don't make sense in a, in a, in a market economy if a city is smaller. You have two ways to look at it. I agree with you that the sort of the, the huge scale of growth in cities have been, have, has been driven by the economic model that has been govern the, governing the world for, for the past centuries. But at the same time, I think there's something more to cities by now. Uh, so people choose to live in cities not just because they, have, uh, they offer uh, good, interesting work, also because of all the positive externalities that you get when you live in a city. So I think it's going to be, as most things nowadays, a combination of both. It's not going to be cities or not cities. It's going to be cities and periphery. It's going to be cities and sort of long weeks uh, working remotely from, from a beach or from sort of a, a nice uh, mountainside resort. So I think it's going to be a mix of things. I don't believe that cities are going to die. Uh, on the contrary, I think they're going to keep densifying and they're going to keep uh, centralizing uh, for example, today, Tirana, the city where I have lived and worked for most of my life, is 
basically half the country. Uh, it's sort of a, a major driver of the country's economy. And I don't see that trend stopping until the point where the country will stop shrinking. But at the same time, as you mentioned, there's the optionality of now not being tied to, to, a, certain, uh, to a certain urban environment for your professional life. And that, I'm sure, I, I agree with you, it has a lot of ramifications in terms of, you know, how our city is governed and, you know, what does bureaucracy even mean anymore in a world where you have different, both physical and virtual cities, and you can be a citizen of a number of cities at the same time. I think there's, a, there's lots of interesting things that will happen there and that a lot of people will have to think very, very hard about. I have worked in the public sector for 10 years, and I have worked in the bureaucracy side of the public sector for 10 years. So I know it uh, quite a bit, and it has for sure a lot of issues. People complain all the time about how inefficient bureaucracies are and you know their general uh, reason for their existence and sort of how much they, they slow things down. But it's important to, I think, also in that perspective, metabolize that that's their purpose. So the purpose of a bureaucracy is to make sure that things don't move too fast. There's a good reason for that. Things can, can move very fast in a good direction or in a bad direction. And in an age of when we had no computers and no technology and no communication, the bureaucracy was one way to make sure that uh, individual changes in individual states or cities or countries didn't happen as fast as, uh, as uh, a, a very powerful individual might have, might have wanted. At the same time, they provide, to a certain degree, a sense of standardization, a sense of sort of equality and equality in how citizens are behave and sort of interact with the state. So I think there's interesting elements. And I think that when you talk about the remote bureaucracy, in a lot of ways, it's still going to be a bureaucracy. It's still going to have to deal with these issues that I just mentioned in terms of, you know, standardization, equality is still going to be, it, it might be even a worse bureaucracy than today. It might be a bit more efficient, but who, whoever said that an efficient bureaucracy is a good thing, right? It really depends on uh, what you optimize the system for. I agree with you that even after the pandemic and so on, people were thinking, okay, is this the end of cities now, finally? Like we had internet and, you know, place wouldn't matter anymore. And of course, we saw some of that, right? Like people fleeing the cities to because they can work remotely or even moving to uh, smaller cities, maybe to have a sort of better quality of life than sometimes the big capitals have become a bit congested and, and lack of green space. Some of these realizations that came and we kind of were starting to look for other values. But if I can come back to what you were mentioning of this idea of maybe potentially living in in several cities and you have talked previously on a, on another podcast about the idea of a network city. Um, so the idea that you can live in one place, but still be connected to cities on the, in the virtual space. How are you seeing this uh, shift in, in the sense that people on the one hand would be connected to uh, their neighborhood, try to participate in some very local processes, and at the same time connect to and participate in very global processes? Linking that to what Simone said on livelihoods, do you see that we will build part of our livelihoods and life very locally and sort of have part of a labor market that is more global or on a functional scale. The idea of network cities or network communities or network states, uh, there's different degrees of it, I think is definitely something that is being explored quite a bit now. I think it's attractive. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very attractive idea, you being able to hang out 
with like-minded people and talk about uh, things that everyone in a certain community shares. On the other end, there's no need to talk about the benefits. You know, it gives access to people from all around the world to a network of individual and opportunities. And sort of, it definitely has a very important element of uh, meritocracy rather than uh, who you know, what you know, and how well you know it. So I think there's quite a bit of benefits to this idea of a, a virtual organization of, you know, I wouldn't call them again cities, but at this stage, communities. And I think that the benefits are are quite understood. I mean, they're the reason why a lot of us participated in internet relay chat chat rooms 30 years ago or 20 years ago. So these sort of communities have been bubbling in the in the web for quite a while. I think it's new technology and sort of new, uh, and I, I, I reiterate blockchain here, uh, that allow these communities to actually build something more long-term uh, rather than a, a more ephemeral uh, chat experience. Uh, they actually allow people to have, again, skin in the game in terms of financial skin in the game or sort of time, investing their time in, in certain projects. So I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in, in the area. One thing, however, really, really scares me in this field, which I really, really follow and I, I like, and that is that typically cities have been generators of social and economic growth, and they have been social and economic elevators for the poorest of the poor. If you look at, a, at any city in the world, typically it's poorer than, than the periphery. The reason being that everyone who moves to cities is, is poor. And the amount of people who are poor who move into a city actually demonstrate the success of that city of elevating those people and making them sort of uh, uh, live better, uh, making them able to pay for the education for their children, providing hope for their future, better access to healthcare, and so on. So basically, to a certain degree, the more you have poor people moving in cities, the more successful a city is being in allowing them to have more opportunities in life. From this perspective, the network state or the network city is a bit scary because what it's saying is we're going to get the, the knowledge elite or the, you know, the, the most knowledgeable people in the world and they're going to hang out together. And then what happens with the rest of the people in, in these virtual cities? Uh, how do they sort of thrive? Are they given opportunities to grow? Uh, and I think that's a, that's a big challenge that hasn't been solved yet. It's one of the reasons why I think that those things are going to coexist for a long time. So physical cities and network cities will coexist and will sort of will be parallel entities that will uh, live. I don't see the physical city ending and the, it being replaced by a virtual city or a network state. I think that those things will coexist for a very, very long time until we have either uh, solved a number of issues or we have sort of destroyed uh, our society to a point where only a few people are able to live in this uh, amazing uh, potential virtual cities. First of all, I, I really like uh, this idea that you brought up of the network city as a way to connect with the network state, you know, Balaji's uh, big idea that everybody's talking about. I was listening to a, to a podcast uh, from the Blockchain Socialist uh, a few weeks ago where uh, they speak, spoke about uh, overthrowing the network state, which I found very, very interesting. And um, one interesting 
thing that they spoke about is that uh, the idea of the network state, uh, uh, according to them, essentially embodied uh, some kind of ethos of disruption and overcoming of uh, inefficient states, you know, that, that so that we can reorganize digitally. And as you said, you know, it's more like uh, elites reorganizing in a way that so they don't depend on, on an inefficient uh, uh, institutions, right? I want to connect this with another concept that I have encountered recently. It's from an Italian economist, De Matteis. He speaks about uh, something that he calls the metropolitan mountain. This idea of metropolitan mountain essentially is a way to uh, represent place, not as a mix, as you said before, but more as a synthesis of uh, uh, two aspects, right? And if I think to Tirana, for example, if I'm not wrong, uh, the city is, uh, has lots of mountains around. And uh, I guess that most of the, the goods that uh, end up in being consumed, the tangible goods, the fundamental goods, must come from the mountainous uh, surroundings of the city. And I find that this uh, mix, uh, this synthesis, sorry, between the, the metropolis and the, and the mountain, a very good uh, abstraction of uh, the paradox uh, that uh, uh, our economies uh, and our livelihoods uh, are, you know, at the moment entangled within. So the idea that, uh, uh, of course, you know, we have been going too much into the digital. Now we really need to start uh, reconsidering a bit our tangible needs uh, because we have been exposed to supply chain failures. And, uh, and in general, I think we are all uh, with climate change and, and these ecological problems we are living in, in Europe at the moment, uh, we have some enormous uh, water supp supply problems, for example. Uh, we have uh, developed this idea that uh, uh, the fundamentals of our economy are very important and most of them are related to place and tangible. Do you see somehow in the, in the future of cities a possibility that uh, citizens essentially will spend uh, uh, an increasing percentage of their time and get also an increasing percentage of their livelihoods uh, uh, by uh, participating to the production of these fundamental economies through institutions that we, which we don't have yet, we have to prototype. Do you see this as a part of the future uh, of the city to foster this ethos of participation and responsibility of, of uh, inhabiting a place and, and contributing to the fundamentals of the economy? Absolutely. I mean, you put it so well. It's the crux of the point I was trying to, to touch upon earlier in this uh, idea of the network state being just composed of intellectuals and uh, everybody else. The mountains, let's say, are not there. And of course, the question there is, you know, how can Tirana or how can uh, any city live without the mountains, as you call them, without the ecosystem that allows them to thrive? So I think that for sure, the the physical economy will definitely be... I think there, that one is really ripe for reinvention and for innovation. We haven't really changed a lot of the, the physical production uh, and the physical making. And we haven't really invested any knowledge in creating or incentivizing that interconnection between the, the urbanscape and the ruralscape. It's been growing apart for centuries now. And there's been a couple of attempts in different cities around the world uh, the EU is now thinking about uh, working in functional areas. We have seen uh, local government reforms all around the world. For example, in my city, again, we moved from uh, a city eight years ago, which was just 40 square kilometers, just the urban area. Now Tirana grew by 25 times. It's 12 
hundred kilometers and includes all the natural and all the agricultural areas around it. So it's the same administration looking at sort of this larger ecosystem and trying to see how it can be interconnected. I think it drives at the, again, at the point of when you, you talked about this virtual revolution, right? As DDoS overthrowing the network state through crashing their servers. And I think that at the end of the day, most attempts at reinventing things from a tabula rasa approach uh, has, have not worked. So if you look at the history of society, if you look at uh, of people trying to design cities top-down, of people trying to design countries top-down, typically we see failure. Uh, we see the, the informal element sort of creeping up and going underground and sort of gaining power. And then at some point you have like a big revolution or you have a big informal development explosion uh, or you have uh, a gray economy that is growing slowly. So in different fields of, of society and civilization, you have these informal powers, which I think are the root of, uh, of humanity in a way. Uh, we are not machines. We, we sort of think very differently of ourselves as individuals. Uh, and then we think very differently of other individuals as part of society. I think when you think about rules, they typically apply to everyone else, except sometimes they don't apply to you. And that seems, you know, from the individual perspective, that seems fine. You know, okay, I can do this today. Come on, no one is, no one is watching. Uh, and I can sort of uh, break the rules a bit. But when you think about society as a whole, it works because there's sort of uh, these rules there. But at the same time, if you don't have these, uh, these individual sort of informal attempts at breaking the rules every once in a while, you wouldn't have uh, innovation. You, you wouldn't have sort of progress. As I mentioned before, it's a bit of both. There's another very, very interesting book by James C. Scott called Seeing Like a State, which talks a lot about these issues uh, in terms of agriculture, in terms of city planning, in terms of political organization. And it's, it all drives to the idea that, you know, attempts to make things legible top down typically fail. At the same time, I think making things legible is not negative per se. It's about how you use that legibility to help individuals be more empowered. So when you talk about a network state and sort of a, a more connected society, how can we use that knowledge and that interconnectedness not only to live a better life for ourselves, but also to have a very strong physical impact on our communities as citizens of both worlds, of both the virtual world and sort of the physical world. And this goes back to what I was saying, where I think that we will be citizens of different cities for the next centuries, and uh, we will for sure always be rooted in a physical city or in a physical, even if in a physical village, it doesn't have to be like a, metropo a metropolis, but we will for sure always be rooted to the physical unless we learn how to emulate the physical in a virtual world, upload our brains somewhere in a remote server, and then think that we have a connection to the physical uh, despite not having it. I would be... Uh, very curious to bounce some ideas around the role that decentralized autonomous organizations and that whole branch. You mentioned blockchain a couple of times, but like going a bit more practical on that. You've worked a lot with urban planning, also with uh, participatory processes, trying to get people engaged in actually co-shaping their cities. We also know, on the other hand, that there are many other players that are not individuals, but are also coexisting, like associations, uh, companies, service providers, and various different entities that exist at the local level. So what I'm getting at is a little bit, on the one hand, how can we 
orchestrate uh, all that, right? What kind of alliances, collaborations can we sort of infuse between the different actors in a city? And how can tools like, for, for instance, the DAOs and blockchain help us to improve those processes that we are trying to do using consultation methods and, and sort of co-creation and, and things, uh, workshops together with citizens to try to engage them. I'm, I'm, I think it's it's a little bit about having more skin in the game than just turning up in a couple of workshops and, and then you go home. And I know you're also working on tools like um, your web platform that is a way to help people to actually read the city because you cannot see everything when you just go out on the street. You might need to have a better tool to actually see where are the services available and how do I interact with them? So there are many things here in this uh, in this questions. Apologi- uh, apologize for that. But uh, I'm really now thinking about uh, the tooling to organize ourselves and improve the governance uh, and participation and skin in the game at the local level. Uh, Stina, I think that in this sort of transition from these global value chains to more local value loops, within communities and within cities, it's very important to think through how these newer technologies can have an impact. I think local government is the apex of democracy because the issues are physical. There's little politics at local government, politics in in the ideological term. It's typically very physical problems, the pothole, the road, the infrastructure, the school. People have skin in the game because they live in the city where they vote. And they are looking at much more practical issues than, you know, foreign policy or, or military operations or things that are sort of larger than even countries. So I think it's, it's really important to look at cities with a, with a different eye in terms of how the decision making there can be improved. From a political sense and from sort of a governance sense, there's DAOs and there's a, the potential of having a local government which is much more subsidiary and fragmented than what we currently have. So currently we vote for typically an individual or a council and sort of they govern for a set number of years and it's very difficult to change that once it happens. And you can vote in an artist to make decisions about physics and you can vote in a a construction engineer to make decisions about art. Of course, they choose their own advisors and you know, there's there's staffing around it for sure. But the decisions are typically centralized and the decision making is also simplistic. You know, you choose one individual to take care of everything and you delegate all authority as a citizen to the mayor or to the council who will then elect a mayor. And I think what DAOs make possible at the local level is a more interactive way to govern where, you know, you don't have to delegate everything to a single individual. You can selectively delegate different decision makings to different experts. So if you really trust a certain architect of the city, then you delegate architectural decisions to him. And if you really trust a certain engineer, you delegate your stake or your votes to him. And if you think you're good by yourself and you want to make these decisions by yourself, you can also do that. This is an interesting idea. Again, I'm I'm still thinking through the, the practical ramifications of making this happen, but it's definitely, it provides for a much more fluid, much more organic way of governing at the local level where you don't have elections once every four years, you're constantly electing and you're constantly making decisions on both expertise terms, but also in terms of geographical terms. Like you might say, you know, I want 
to make my own decisions for my own neighborhood. And then I want to delegate decision-making to another neighborhood, to the people who live there. Why should I be the one choosing a mayor who then chooses for some other place in the in the far corner of, of the city where I live in? So it allows, I think, our organizations and governance to scale both at the technical level as well as at the geographical level, which is something that can't really happen today because it would be too complex. It would be akin to trying to run a neural network through manually through an Excel uh, Excel sheet. The toolkits are super important in trying to give birth to these newer ways of organizing locally. And as I mentioned before, I think that Christopher Alexander's ideas were far ahead of their time. And only now we're getting to a point where technology is caught up and we could experiment and we could try and sort of uh, see how they would work in, in real life. And they might fail. But, you know, it's an interesting experiment to run. And the thought behind a layer has been sort of similar. So the idea has been, okay, there is throughout my work uh, at, uh, at the local level, I have stumbled constantly upon interesting data sets, which have sort of global coverage. And we were, at some point in 2017, we were sort of rethinking about the, the planning of the city of Tirana. And we were trying to have as many of these interactive ideas of uh, we had we, we worked under a concept that we termed bounded flexibility. We didn't want to be arbitrary, but at the same time, we didn't want rules to be so strict that there could be no innovation there. So we wanted rules to be flexible, but not arbitrary. So we wanted there to be some level of bounds to what you could do. And the bounds were also regulated, but you know nothing was fixed in terms of how you could build the city. And I think that in thinking through with that and sort of in, in, uh, in building up on the experience from, uh, from the past decade, I thought it might be very interesting for cities around the world to have access to that wealth of knowledge that already exists out there. Uh, often it's, uh, it's geospatial or crowdsourced, so it's not as correct as a census would be, but it's updated much more often. It has a higher resolution. It has a, a global, global coverage. So basically it allows people from all over the world to have a, a more interesting look at uh, what's available in terms of data for, for their own cities. For example, one interesting data point uh, that we have is the difference in nightlight activity and how sort of that has changed in the past uh, decades. There was some research just recently, which I could share, which basically illustrated how if you put nightlight activity as an indicator for economic development, and you looked at countries across the world, and you looked at the GDP and you correlated that to the nightlight activity, you would see that authoritarian countries performed worse when you looked at the nightlight activity because they were clearly lying on their GDP performance, on their sort of formal GDP reports that they were making to, you know, they were publishing in their, in their sort of official statistics. So basically there was a way for you to check which country was lying more about their GDP uh, compared to the global average. So again, this could happen at the national level, but I'm more interested at the local level. And what I mean by that is, if you live in Milan and you want to open a new pharmacy, because you're a pharmacist, and you sort of you look at the city and you think, okay, where do I open a new pharmacy? What's the best spot today to open a new pharmacy? No one will give you that information. And I think the best way to make the city slowly and organically more efficient is to provide that pharmacist with that ability to make the decision in a more intelligent way. And by doing that singular decision, by doing that sort of singular action in his city, by opening his new uh, drug shop at a better spot than uh, what he was thinking, 
you're improving very slightly the efficiency and the performance of the city as a whole. If you can improve hundreds or even potentially hundreds of thousands of decisions that citizens take in their cities at the local level, at sort of at the bottom-up level, then you are making the city much better than a planner could at the top-down sort of um, organizational bureaucratic scale. The concept behind the layer is exactly that. You sign up, you have access to some layers initially. Uh, we're still working a lot to, to add information. There's a data catalog. You can see it, all the data we have, and we're very happy to work, especially with educational and research organizations and provide our services to them uh, without any cost to see to experiment in, this, in these fields. But the idea has always been how can people improve decision-making at the most local level that is possible, and by doing that, they might have, at scale, a much larger impact in how a city grows and how a city thrives than individual planners, technocrats at City Hall could ever dream to have. I was reading an essay just a few minutes ago by Block Science uh, called Disambiguating Autonomy. And uh, they have this very good uh, visual way to explain how in any organization you have essentially two aspects of autonomy. One is political and one is functional. The political is um, the way we decide. And then there is more like um, an individual activation that uh, uh, mostly deal with the tactical aspects or how we do things. So imagine that an organization, know, uh, sorry, a, co- a city knows uh, as defined, let's say, collectively the directions where it wants to develop itself. But then uh, you need to have citizens to jump in and to organize and to produce uh, value, produce services. Do you know of uh, experiments or are you maybe planning in your work to do experiments in a way that, uh, for example, a city can create an organization that actively invests into citizens uh, building uh, enterprises where they have uh, their own skin in the game and they can essentially enact the strategic direction where the city wants to develop without this top-down uh, approach but uh, uh, more uh, through uh, enabling constraints essentially no there's some examples which i have been part in and i think there's hundreds of examples around the world but they're very constrained in scale i think that's what's missing how do you scale this uh, these examples up and i think the issue there is a typical issue that you have when you're talking about bottom-up. It's very difficult to scale it, both in terms of data gathering, both in terms of incentivizing. Uh, so in more concrete terms, for example, we applied a lot of uh, co-design. We wanted to implement this network of playgrounds around uh, older neighborhoods in Tirana. We built, I think, almost 80 or more than 80 playgrounds in, uh, in four or five years. And each of those playgrounds, at its, at its sort of the basic idea was how can we go to the community and have a talk with them and you have like a, a designer from city hall and you have like a decision maker and then you have people who actually live the area there and they design it together they have this sort of co-designing process and then of course the city implements it now this is not as entrepreneurial as uh, as one might uh, might hope but it still it, it it gives you an example of that interaction between bureaucracy and uh, real people in the city. Another interesting uh, element, which I think has an element of incentive, was uh, we had this thing called the community fund. And basically you could apply for any community intervention in your building or in your neighborhood, uh, which had sort of a public sense. Uh, So if you wanted to, you know, repair a certain street or if you wanted to plant some trees or if you wanted to fix the facades, 
And then you would have to pay half and the city would support half of the project if it was successful. And it would sort of co-finance uh, through this community fund a lot of uh, interesting small interventions uh, around uh, around the city. I think in terms of data, as you mentioned, I think money is super important here. So I think at the end of the day, incentives are all about the financial aspect behind them. And I only talk about this in terms of the city trying to incentivize activation at the bottom at the bottom level, at some sort of bottom up. And you definitely need financial incentive for that to happen. People could have those incentives, by, they, they could do it by themselves if they didn't have the financial support and they would have already done it. The fact that they don't is that something is missing. And typically in cities, it's sort of the financial incentive that is offered by a larger organization to make this happen. The other thing that you, I think you touched upon uh, a bit uh, in terms of how can the strategic be cross-related to the individual? I think, you know, how can the individual have sort of a very small impact on the strategic aspect of a larger city rather than just individual tactics, uh, society sort of strategy? What I was driving at before with the idea of how can cities make their data available to individuals? So what typically happens, and you have a movement of open data portals now, and people are sort of publishing their data, and I think that's super important. The idea there again being, if a city gathers gathers data and they want to use the data to make better decision-making, they will not be able to make better decision-making because the data is not telling everything. However, I think if the city is taking this data and offering it back to the people, then people can actually make better, smaller decisions. Now, the impact that a politician at the city level can have on a city can be amazing or it can be horrible because they hold so much power. So if they have the power of data behind them, uh, these decisions can, can have even worse or better consequences. At the individual level, the consequences are limited. It's a much better, more resilient way to experiment uh, when the risk sort of surface is smaller, uh, which is typically the case in communities and in cities. Uh, I think these are some examples of how do you get that collaboration but I think it's it's far away from uh, from like one one thing that comes to mind was when we were when we were working on uh, redesigning the plan for Tirana, we would hold these social public hearings about the the work of the plan. We had worked for months in this uh, vision for the city and what we thought were important uh, ideas and concepts to be implemented through the plan. Then we would meet communities. And it was like, you know what, these are very interesting, but I'm more worried about the pothole out of my door rather than your vision about an orbital forest uh, around Tirana. So the issues that people typically have were much smaller, much more community-oriented. And I think that uh, this is often lost in governance. People tend to focus on what will get them reelected, what are the big ideas, what are the big visions, the big projects, and they often miss the importance of the, the smaller interventions, the more community-scale interventions. And I think that uh, one place where Tirana has really shined is exactly that. So I think uh, Tirana has been able to strike a very good balance between large-scale, strategic interventions that can become mediatic and sort of can bring tourism and interest to the city, and individual co-designed, community-funded, smaller interventions uh, uh, sort of an urban acupuncture around the city. When you say that uh, people are uh, definitely most uh, more, more interested in community scale uh, issues than in you know kind of uh, big projects that maybe regenerate the city just uh, for the sake of uh, 
improving the real estate cost. I, I can I can feel them. I, I think you know the, the question that comes up from this conversation is uh, there is a process of delegation that uh, somehow the cities needs to accept. The, the city needs to. Uh, encourage, you know, this passage of power and empowerment uh, that needs to go beyond uh, just, you know, participating in decision making or or maybe clicking here and there to influence participatory budgeting, but more like having the responsibility as a city to remove uh, these systemic lock-ins helping the citizens develop the capabilities, you know, the intimacy, the empathy, the capacity to uh, participate in in complex uh, entrepreneurial and uh, and communal uh, initiatives to uh, take a prominent uh, role in developing the future of their cities. a lot of the work that the future of cities uh, deals with is about, you know, really making this possible, somehow letting go some of the bureaucratic power that, uh, you know, maybe sometimes also in, uh, in good faith, you know, some, some, cities, some uh, civil servants may exert, you know, and uh, maybe, again, in good faith make big mistakes, right? So I, I think that's, that's really something that is coming up from, from, from this conversation. And I think uh, we're really looking forward to see how your work will play out in the future. And many people can be inspired by, by, by your story, I think. Can I ask you a couple of breadcrumbs that you want to share with our uh, listeners that may be uh, influential to their t- uh, thinking in, in, in this space? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mentioned uh, a bit of them during the podcast. So I think there are some very interesting books which sort of uh, connect a lot of dots or in my experience have connected a lot of dots for me throughout my career. Uh, And I mentioned uh, Seeing Like a State by James Scott. I mentioned Christopher Alexander and the Pattern Language. I mentioned Alain Berto's uh, Order Without Design. There's uh, quite a bit of other interesting books uh, which touch a bit upon uh, this idea of complexity that has also really, really changed my my perspective uh, in how complex systems work and how they're sort of uh, related to cities. A very, very good book is called A Crude Look at the Whole uh, by John Miller. There's A World's Hidden in Plain Sight by David Krakauer. There's Scale by Geoffrey West. I think those books sort of uh, really drive at like a hidden order that we can't understand through linear thinking. It doesn't mean it's ununderstandable. It just means that the current tools at our disposal make it very, very difficult to to see. Like when you think a four-dimensional cube, a hypercube, you know mathematically can exist, you just can't, our mind is not sort of fit to envision it. For a child, it's not as easy to envision a three-dimensional object, but we have trained through, through school, through education, now we can envision it in our minds. We can do it for things that are a bit more complex. I think one of the big impacts that uh, uh, future cities will will have and future citizens will have is understanding, I think, this this mind shift, this idea of things being, you know, sometimes too complex to understand and how can we find uh, their projection and then how can we lever or sort of have our impact in the projection of these complex systems into a complicated world. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Joni. I think you have left us with uh, tons of uh, books on our reading list. Um, and we really hope that you will keep putting your content out there to help uh, making this like step-by-step more practical, like we also started the conversation with. I think it's uh, 
this will really uh, require a step-by-step uh, process. And uh, this idea of maybe having a system of small bets, letting people experiment with what matters to them, and in that way kind of introduce concept of uh, more decentralized ways of organizing and participate in decision-making might happen through that door as well. That's kind of an intuition that I got from your last uh, passage there. A lot of these ideas and a lot of more breadcrumbs, if people are interested, you can find, I have like a newsletter, which I used to write. I haven't written as much in the in the past year, but I'll try to, to fix that in the future. It's called thinkthinkthink.substack.com. And uh, I think there's quite a bit of smaller bite-sized ideas about cities uh, that might be interesting to people who like the field. Absolutely. No, we will put all of this in in the show notes. So really, thank you for joining us uh, in this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was super fun uh, and very, very stimulating. Uh, you know, my, my, my head is hurting a bit now. I have to metabolize the interesting thoughts from you and Simone. Uh, and uh, it was very, very, very fun to be here. For the listeners, all these uh, books and references and where to find Joni's work, you will find, as usual, on uh, our website, boundaryless.io slash resources slash podcast. And you will find Joni's episode there with all the links needed. And thank you, Simone, for the conversation today. Thank you. Always fascinating where we can go a bit uh, of the usual tracks so and to our listeners we catch up soon and remember to think boundaryless so this exact topic uh, that we spoke to Joni about is something that I really would like to research more about you know like this interplay between the physical and virtual and how that influences how uh, cities are formed and, and how we try to to shape um, urban space and, and uh, surroundings. Uh, it's a really exciting episode for me. Me too. I think I share this excitement for this topic because cities are very often just at the background of everything we talk about without we even, even realize it, right? So we speak about so many new things and organizational models and products and futures, but then see this stand there and deserve our attention.